Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing, ready to learn, or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to wings.robinhood.com. That's wings.robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield, APY, on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And the topic of the day is dumb late penalties. Yeah, multiple dumb penalties by the Red Wings cost them what were pretty good efforts, uh, most notably by Jimmy Howard. I think probably the biggest story from the week uh, from the weekend, really, is that Jimmy Howard seems to have found his game uh, although we're only talking about a couple games here. But ultimately, he couldn't walk away with his first win since October 29th because of dumb late penalties. Yeah, I mean, the, so the first one against the Penguins is uh, maybe a little more forgivable. I don't know. It's it's Luke Lindenning, and uh, I, like he was tied up a little bit, and he finishes a check. I don't know if it's frustration or what's going on. And, uh, you know, the possibility of some embellishment probably worth acknowledging there. Uh, but it gives the Penguins a four-on-three power play in overtime that they convert immediately. Uh, and then last night, uh, a slashing penalty in a, in a tight game that makes it a not-tight game uh, almost immediately on the power play. Yeah, the Glenn Denning one's really interesting because when I first commented on it, I was like, man, this just looks like a really stupid penalty because uh, it was a hit nowhere near the puck, and so it was very right. obviously going to be interference. But I think if you go back and watch it, it almost looks like Glenn Denning trips over his own stick loses his balance, and then all of a sudden goes, oh, crap, this is going to be a three-on-two the other way, and basically reaches out and grabs the guy, which, again, in that situation, you would rather he give up the three-on-two as opposed to take the penalty there. But, you know, all that being said, like, you can't put Sidney Crosby on the power play. And it was really funny because for those of us watching on the broadcast, uh, the Penguins try to execute a play, and Howard makes a save. And so as they're going into the faceoff, Mickey Redmond goes, okay, so what they're going to do here is they're going to draw this puck back. They're going to get it over to Malkin across the ice, catch Howard moving, and go to the front of the net. And literally in six seconds, that's exactly what happens. Uh, they go across the ice, get Howard moving right to left, and then go to the tip pass right in front of the net for Crosby to score. And so that's a big one. And then the Biega one, I think, is a lot more unforgivable. It's it almost looked like a retaliatory play, and in, in hindsight, it's it's not a particularly harmful play that he makes, but it's a wholly unnecessary play. It's going to get penalized. Actually, kudos to the refs for initially calling it a spear in a five-minute major before they were then able to utilize the new rule, which allows them to review those major penalties, and, and they were able to downgrade it appropriately to a slash, but the Panthers capitalized very quickly and put that game out of reach. Yeah, it's it's a it's a rough play. I mean, and kudos to to Mickey for becoming uh, Tony Romo apparently, but you know, the Red Wings just aren't any I mean, no team can do that, but the Red Wings are nowhere near a good enough team to take undisciplined penalties late in games that they actually have a chance to win. Yeah, I mean, we've talked at length about their scoring struggles at even strength. The Florida game in particular, they go 0 for 7 on the power play. They're just not a team that can continue to give up chances and then you know, they had done a decent job of hemming in Florida for the most part, and Florida being the highest scoring team in the NHL, that had the capacity to go really ugly for the Wings. 
But they, you know, Howard was very, very good. He was very strong in his net, but you can't keep taking those penalties and giving, a, you know, the highest scoring team in the league multiple cracks at, at putting it past you, particularly when you can't convert on a night where Florida was going in and out of the box consistently. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I, I think, actually, it was pretty impressive of the Red Wings to even claw their way back into that game based on the end of the first period when, when Phil Pronick takes 17 minutes of penalties on one, honestly, pretty anticlimactic fight that was mostly body blows. Uh, but he takes 17 minutes of penalties. He goes off for... Uh, you know, basically a period of hockey and the Blue Jackets, or not the Blue Jackets, the uh, Panthers score a couple times. And uh, it, that was a very real risk of teetering on one of those games where the Red Wings play tight, play tight, play tight, get destroyed for eight minutes, and then the game's basically over. Uh, the Red Wings limited the damage to two goals there and then really clawed their way back in with a Dylan Larkin goal and, and, and holding some possession, getting some chances uh, to the point where with seven or eight minutes left before that Biega penalty, uh, I think there was a real chance that game could have been sent to overtime. Yeah, I mean, they had opportunities, I thought, to to be able to tie that game. I mean, Larkin's breakaway goal was outstanding. It was a great pass by Darren Helm. And then there were multiple opportunities where uh, I think in the early part of that third period, the game had opened up a bit and the Wings got a handful of chances uh, Franz Nielsen had a breakaway chance. There was a, a number of other great opportunities, and and I think Sergei Bobrovsky actually played an excellent game and really held the Panthers in it until that penalty occurs uh, by Biega, and then the, the Panthers get that power play goal and, and then are able to get the empty netter to put it out of reach. But, man, I mean, there, there, was, there were chances there, and I think this is ultimately what the Wings have been looking for with the way they play um, their whole identity is is to try and keep it a lower event or a lower pace game, and if they can rely on their goaltender to get uh, some saves for them and, and make some big time saves, they can stay competitive in these hockey games and stay threatening. And I think that's what you saw in both of these games this weekend. As Jimmy Howard played sensational, I thought he faced a number of high quality chances, probably more than the Wings would have liked to give up. And he was simply outstanding. And for me, he was the best player of the weekend. Um, but, you know, again, he kept them in striking range, but the Wings themselves kind of shot themselves in the foot. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and the power play continues to just be such a glaring fault of this team. And I don't know what necessarily they need to do differently. I think Dylan Larkin last night was talking about them needing to simplify a little bit. It's funny because it doesn't look all that complex right now, um, but I, I guess I do get what he means is just, you know, take what's there. Uh, Jeff Blaschel, I think, also kind of made a comment about that, about not trying to make these seam passes through guys when that's not who the personnel is. Um, maybe, maybe the power play is trying to get a little too fancy to overcompensate uh, for some of the, the struggles. I don't I don't know what the issue is there, uh, but it's it's a team that is not getting basically anything out of their special teams. And, in fact, they're being hurt quite a bit by their special teams night in and night out. Yeah, and I think a lot of times when coaches and, and broadcasters talk about simplification, they talk about just getting pucks in deep, getting into the retrievals, putting pucks on net. But, you know, none of that's truly been associated with uh, power play success. Like, you'd obviously rather carry that puck in as opposed to dumping but it. But it's in. not what they were talking about. Like 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 Blashell even said like he, what he was talking about was like making a pass to the guy, you know, a few feet away from you instead of the guy across the ice. Like it wasn't even like a let's dump it in, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I honestly the number one issue for me when I look at the Red Wings power play uh, over the and it goes beyond this season. It's really gone on for probably the last 4 years is as simple as handedness. So when you set up on the power play, and a lot of teams right now play this 1-3-1 power play where you have one guy in front of the net, and then kind of right above the face-off dots, you have a, a trio of guys going across the ice. You have one guy on the left half boards, one guy in that slot area, one guy on the right half boards, and they're kind of at the, the same level, uh, if you will, in the, in the offensive zone. And then you have the guy at the top of the power play, who's kind of quarterbacking the whole thing. And a lot of teams, when they run this 1-3-1 power play, they like to run it from one of the half boards. Uh, and so whether that's the left half boards or the right half boards, what you ultimately need is you need the guys to actually have the stick in the right hand to open up passing lanes. So, for example, if you're running it from the left half boards, but you've got a right-hander 
you know, at the top of the power play, that's not a clean passing lane. And in fact, that's a passing lane that's more easily disrupted when you're going from a left-hand stick to a right hand at the top of the power play as opposed to left to left. And then same thing, if you've got a right-hander in the slot, fine, you could pass them the puck in the slot, but they're not in shooting position. And so if you go and you pull clips of Washington's power play or a lot of the other really great power plays, the key to it is there's always multiple passing lanes. And I think the the issue with the Wings power play simply is handedness removes a lot of the clean passing lanes, and then the other two are defended by the, the penalty kill. And so ultimately you do have to result in uh, the result is forcing passes across the seam because you're going to have to force something through what's what's available uh, or what the other team is basically daring you to do. And when those get completed, they're able to get chances. But really, I just don't think enough passing lanes are open and the defense recognizes this and they set up in a manner that basically takes away the other easy ones. That's really interesting. I mean, that, that's something that the Red Wings had talked about in the preseason about liking having – Dennis Cholosky up top on their power play because he was a left shot and it made all those passing lanes easier. Uh, so you wonder if maybe uh, there could be something there with Dennis Cholosky come back up. He's not lighting the world on fire in Grand Rapids. He did score last night. He's, he's got a couple goals in the last week. But as a whole, you know, he, he's been less productive in Grand Rapids this year than he was last year in terms of uh, per game wise. So and, and even I think not that far off where he had been in Detroit. He's got five points in 17 games. Where was he... Uh, in Detroit this season. Yeah, I mean, he was he was still putting up points in Detroit this year, I, and right. I don't think that was ever really the issue. I think for him, you know, they honestly wanted him to, to round out the rest of his game. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely a great point, that at the beginning of the year, that was the emphasis, and that was the reason for having him in that situation was handedness. And so, like, you know, bringing it back to this Washington example, Washington likes to run their power play from the right half boards with Nicholas Backstrom. And so when you look at the way they set up, they've got John Carlson uh, at the top of the point, and he's in position for a one-timer. You've got TJ Oshie as a right-handed shot. He's in the slot. He's available for the one-timer. They've got a left-handed shot in front of the net who can flex out, take that pass, and then have a direct passing lane to TJ Oshie in the slot. And then you've got Alex Ovechkin as a right-hander on the far board, on the far side of the ice, who's, again, always in position for a shot. And so at that point, you literally have four passing options that a team has to then decide which of those am I going to defend, which am I, which of those am I going to give up, and the, ultimately what ends up happening is they're able to get the rotation to Ovechkin or they're able to get the slot shot with Oshie, whether it's a direct pass from Backstrom or it's Backstrom to the goal line to then to the slot. And I think if you just mimic that and you look at that and you find a way to open up more passing lanes, it seems natural that the Wings would be able to be more effective. And even if you go back to when the Wings were really effective with their power play, they were running it mostly from the left half boards with Datsuk. You had a a left shot in the slot. You had a left shot at the top of the point. You had a right shot in front of the net. Uh, and you had another left shot on the far side of the boards. And so I really do think it's as simple as, as boiling it down to handedness and opening up more passing lanes. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. I mean, I think I understood that they wanted the the situation with, with all lefties for passing lane purposes, but I think that's a really clear example of of how it really works. And, and so I think uh, maybe it's something we see a little more of. You know, they moved Trevor Daly up onto the second power play uh recently and i think that could be there could be something to that because they have kind of a a, sh- a true focal point on that power play in philip zadina i wonder if it's uh maybe the first power play i think they probably see the philip Hronik one-timer as the big weapon uh, and that's why they got mike green up top feeding it to Hronik. but when the rest of the unit then is lefties uh maybe that's a little too complicated i mean red wings fans to their credit have for both years i've been on the beat uh, messaged me often about the need for more right-handed shots, and did I think there was going to be any emphasis on that, whether it was in the draft or in free agency. Uh, so the power play definitely would be an area where where that will show up. Yeah, I mean, for example, like if you're going to put Ronick and make him the focal point on that power play, then yeah, it makes natural sense for Mike Green to be the guy at the top of the the one three one, yeah. and if you're going to run that power play from the the right half wall with a left shot over there, the tricky part for the wings there. It, is you would want a left shot to be able to be in front of the net to come down to the goal line, which yep. they have that, but they don't have the right shot in the slot. And so at that point, you only have two passing lanes that are short passing lanes available to you. You can make the pass down to the goal line, and you can make the pass up to the, the top of the point to Mike Green, 
or you try and force it cross ice to Philip Ronick. And so in those two situations, it's very easy to actually neutralize the slot guy without having to put a single guy on the slot guy. Because if the slot guy is a left-handed shot, he's not able to receive a pass cleanly from that half boards and then turn and shoot before that puck can get blocked. And so the the PK is then able to flex a little bit higher and get in the way of that Mike Green passing lane. And now all of a sudden you're in a trickier spot, and that's a more difficult pass to make simply because you're almost eliminating a passing option and therefore the need for a a guy to be in close proximity if it's going to run that way. And so I think the Wings really need to think about how they're constructing their power play from a personnel and a handedness standpoint because I do think they're actually limiting their their options all by themselves and it's not it doesn't have to do with uh the the personnel or the players it has more to do with simply who's holding the stick in the right hand yeah no absolutely and I think you know part of it could be when uh Anthony Mantha and Andreas Athanasiu return you could see both of those guys plug back into the top power play I don't know who quarterbacks it at that point maybe maybe you go back to the look with Robbie Fabry up there although that experiment didn't go too well in the couple games that they had it that way uh and then maybe you go back to Green Heronic with Giovanni Smith at the net uh and then maybe you put Luke Lindenning as the bumper on that power play and Philip Zadina on the other flank just because at this point you can't not have Philip Zadina on your power play he's been maybe their most effective power play player on the team so uh return from injuries could that give him a little bit of help there yeah i mean i think the injury situation will help but i do think uh if that's the case the wings are going to have to reverse the side of the ice that they they set up their power play on because if you're primarily left shots then you need to be setting up from the left half wall um and potentially you want a right-handed shot being that setup guy so potentially you have mike green playing down there uh, you get creative and you maybe put a different left shot at the top of that power play. Um, you know, you, you think about maybe you put Anthony Mantha at the top of the ice. You put Mike Green on that left half boards. You put Philip Zadina on the other half boards. Uh, you put another left shot, maybe Andreas Athanasiu in the slot there. And you get potentially Luke Glendening to be the screener in front of the net to be that right-handed pass. Uh, and that's, that's a power play unit. And then on the second one, I think you're going to have to be more creative because even if you get everybody back from injuries, the Wings still only have one right-handed forward uh, in their lineup, and that is Luke Glendening. And so it becomes a little bit more difficult. You could certainly try and reconstruct the power play to then the second unit maybe runs from the, the, the right side of the ice, but I still don't think you have enough right shots to make it a truly lethal power play, which is why I think the idea of just stacking one power play makes a whole lot of sense for the Wings. Well, surprise, surprise, there aren't many easy answers for the 2019-20 Detroit Red Wings. Who could have thought? (laughs) Uh, All right, moving on. Uh, Pittsburgh game, anything stand out to you in that one? I mean, that was a tight-to-the-wire game. It goes to overtime. I thought Jimmy Howard was outstanding in that one, but anything else beyond that uh, really catch your eye? No, I mean, I thought the Wings had a a decent game overall. I think they were able to, to stay tight with Pittsburgh for... You know, probably the first 20 to 30 minutes, I think Pittsburgh really took over uh, about midway through the second and, and was able to to really put it to the wings over the third period. Um, and then ultimately in overtime, they, they swung it that way. But Pittsburgh's a, a heck of a team. They've been honestly the hottest team in hockey for a little while. And, and so it was good for the wings to be able to stay competitive on the scoreboard. And obviously a large part of that was Jimmy Howard playing fantastic. Yep. Yep, absolutely it was, and, and the Phillips Adina goal, uh, that kept him at about a half point per game pace. I believe he's still there because there was two games this weekend, and that's how math works. But uh, ha- do, have you seen any slowdown at all from him? I mean, last night he gets put up on the uh, Larkin-Bertuzzi line, and he, pretty invisible, I thought, for most of the night. Yeah, I think, honestly, last night was a little bit tough to really evaluate uh, a lot of the players just because once Philpola left with injury, yeah. which we'll talk about in a second, all the lines got scrambled. Nobody really played consistently. And then the other piece was that half the game was played at special teams. And so there were long stretches where there was no even strength, there was no rhythm, there was no flow uh, because you have the guys on the power play unit who then need rest. So you're bringing out other guys at even strength. But at that time, then you have another penalty taken. So I thought it was very difficult for anybody to establish any sort of rhythm at even strength. I think basically every player looked invisible at even strength for the most part because 
I don't know that there was more than a three or four minute stretch of even strength play to truly roll four lines before you had the next power play uh, or penalty opportunity. So I think it's it's tough to evaluate. I think he's maybe slowing down a little in the sense of scoring. He's not scoring at the same you know point six pace that he was maybe scoring at a little bit earlier a couple weeks back. But I still think he's having a, a, a solid impact. Um, on the Red Wings, on the, on the team, I think he's still been one of their better forwards in a situation where it's it's not been easy for the Wings to get any sort of help, particularly when they're missing a lot of guys that would uh, that would provide some sort of benefit. But he's still, you know, he's been a I think a great player by goals above replacement. He's still a fourth best player on the team behind Larkin, Bertuzzi, and Mantha right now. Um, so I think he's still having a, a big impact, whether or not he's showing up on the score sheet. And he's fully deserving of those opportunities to play on that top line. Yeah, and top power play too, realistically. I mean, I know, I understand that the handedness emphasis, but I think he was really, he did score on the second power play this weekend, so maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think he, he worked very well, especially being able to play, uh, some give and go with, with Larkin on the bumper. I think he worked very well with having, uh, Tyler Bertuzzi down low, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think I'd, probably say that he's best suited on that first power play though again as we've said on the show before just about everyone's better suited playing with better players so maybe it's not a point worth uh you know spending too much time on i mean the interesting thing though is if you're looking at guys who bring value to the power play i mean philip zadina is arguably brought one of the brought the most value to the power play of any player on the red wings so when you take oh, no doubt. when you take those goals above replacement and you break them down into each of the individual components, one thing we can look at is power play offense uh, per sixty minutes uh, from that goals above replacement standpoint. And he's thirty fourth in the NHL in terms of power play offense per sixty minutes, uh, looking at goals above replacement that specific component. Which I mean that's that's outstanding. There's no Red Wing that's higher than him. There's no Red Wing that's even close to him. Uh, right now, he's sh- sure he has a very small sample size of, of 24 games, but that's hold up. That's held up over 24 games. So I, I think it's worthwhile experimenting that he's a guy who's brought a lot of benefit to the Wings power play. And you and I have talked about his ability to to utilize the slot pass to open up those passing lanes. And that's going back to that handedness that I was talking about. So even though the Wings have a left shot in the slot, and Zadina's a left-handed. Uh, shooter from the right boards and that pass isn't necessarily using putting the slot guy in the shooting position it's still forcing the defense to respond to that player uh, by utilizing that and that's what opens up that longer cross-size pass to to get those one-timers and that's what opens up more space at the top for Mike Green or Philip Roenick to shoot so you know his willingness to utilize the slot his willingness to get after pucks and retrieve them I think He's brought a substantial benefit to the Wings' power play right now. And so even though he's on power play two, I do think they should consider putting him back on power play number one. Yeah, and that you know that's kind of my gut instinct too, is that when, when a guy's having that level of success, you know, the Red Wings have been pretty committed to an even split between power play one and two. Man, with the talent discrepancy between those two units, wouldn't you like to see that more like, you know, 80-40 in terms of seconds? Yeah, I mean, I would personally just say stack it and run almost an entire two minutes with with that power play one because either way, you're, you're typically not coming back after the power play with that first unit. Even if they've played, you know, 30 or 40 seconds, you're still not likely coming back with them. So I'd say give them, give them a majority of that power play. It's not like it's a similar – it's not like it's the same kind of shift. And I don't know if Blashill's worried about – odd man chances happening at the end of the power play if the team gets tired uh, or something along those lines. But I'd say just almost run, particularly now when you're without Athens and Mantha, run the entire two minutes with that top unit. I guess the one point you could make, though, is that first unit has has not been successful at all. And if you're giving them the message that, you know, hey, we're going to up your usage here we're gonna put you on the ice more does that kind of register like oh great we're doing great (laughs) i mean i'm i can't imagine the players could have any illusion of that based on you know what their results have been this year but uh, i guess maybe that could be a consideration i'm not sure i'm not entirely sure but i also don't think the first unit has been maybe constructed in the in the best possible sense so like if i'm if i'm redoing the first unit right now 
I'm going to put Mike Green on the left half boards to be that right-handed shot, and I'm going to run most of the power play through him. I mean, the guy has a pedigree of being able to run a power play. Uh, just look at what he did in Washington when he was doing it from the top of the point. Uh, at the top of the 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 one three one, I'm going to put Robbie Fabry as that left-handed shot. I think he's got an excellent, excellent one-timer, great slap shot on the far boards. Uh, on the basically on the right half wall, I'm going to put Philip Zadina. Uh, in the slot, I'm going to put Dylan Larkin. And as my net front screener, I'm going to put uh, Tyler Bertuzzi. And he's the one guy that maybe doesn't fit from a perfect handedness standpoint, being a left-hander, uh, where ideally you would want Luke Glendening a, a right-hander. But I still think Bertuzzi's smart enough and capable enough around the front of the net that he's going to bring value to that unit. And I'm going to run that power play primarily from that half wall. And I think if you construct it like that, You've got at least three clean passing lanes, if not a fourth with Bertuzzi on his backhand. And I think you're going to be able to run a lot of different passing triangles there. And I would run two minutes with that. And potentially the only guy you're subbing out is Mike Green for Philip Ronick because you're keeping the handedness the same uh, and you're able to u- utilize both those guys. But I think try that and maybe have Green and Ronick split the, split the power play um, and see what you get out of that. Well, that's an interesting idea. I mean, we'll we'll see. I'm sure, based on how much they've been modifying things already, I'm sure we have not seen the last iteration of uh, Red Wings power play units. So probably probably many more to come yet this season. I did want to get to one more thing from this weekend though that uh, doesn't sound like it's going to have real long term implications, and that's the Valtteri Filppula injury. Uh, he goes out early in the game. Really does affect the Red Wings' uh, the ability to construct you know coherent lines. They had to basically flip uh, three centers to do four centers jobs uh, and I think that did mess with some of the line uh, matching a little bit but the bigger issue is you know he should be back for Monday I think is what they expect but uh, any any real thoughts on on the Philpool injury I mean if he's out long term which again so far everything we've seen suggests that he'll, he'll be back for Monday and, and it's yeah. nothing major um, it might have just been precautionary to keep him out the rest of the game just to get some more information but I mean, if he is truly out long-term, that's a huge blow for the Red Wings because, as you and I have talked about, a lot of people kind of scoffed at the Philpola signing in the offseason, myself included, until you realize that, oh boy, who else was going to play second-line center right now? Because when you've seen how far Franz Nielsen's really dropped off, um, you know, honestly, your most viable candidate to play second-line center at this point is Luke Glendening, which I know a lot of people don't really want Luke in that uh, offensive scoring role and having to play those heavier minutes with those offensive guys. But he's arguably your best option over Nielsen or over Darren Helm, who hasn't really played a lot of center uh, in the last couple of years. So, yeah, if you're missing Philpola, it really does shift things uh, in a different direction for the Wings, and it is going to be a significant impact on, on their offense uh, even though they're already the worst offense in the NHL, I think that's still a huge, uh, huge problem for the Wings if he is going to miss multiple games. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like he will. Uh, but I did want to ask you if, like, let's say in, in a world where, like, you know, we don't anticipate this happening, but where Philpo is going to miss a week or two, who's your call for that? I mean, is it is it just plugging Glendening in and you and you call up someone on the winger, or, or you put Brandon Perlini back on the lineup? Uh, or are you calling up a center from Grand Rapids? That's the thing is if you look down in Grand Rapids and you're saying, is there anybody I've got right now that's going to play a top six role? You're naturally, you're going to gravitate towards, uh, Michael Rasmussen or, or Joe Valeno. I think the problem is Rasmussen's coming. He's just only been back three games now, I think, from his, uh, back injury. It's been a little bit of, you know, he's looked good so far in Grand Rapids, but I think honestly, I'd rather him sustain that confidence and and keep going in Grand Rapids as opposed to coming up for a short-term call-up fresh off of an injury where I don't know that he's necessarily in a position to succeed. Um, And then same thing, Joe Valeno, he had a great World Juniors um, from a minute standpoint, played a lot of time. I'd rather him keep riding that confidence wave in Grand Rapids than than coming up and struggling for a handful of games. And so then you have to say, is it going to be Dominic Turgeon? Well, no, he's not necessarily a better option than anybody uh, already in the Wings lineup. So I think the natural thing is just push Glenn Denning up to the second line and then bring Perlini back into the lineup uh, and see what you've got. 
Okay, yeah, I think that's very fair. I uh, I don't know what the what the optimal move is. I think you know I think there's an argument to be made that maybe you want to see Evgeny Svechnikov, uh, although I don't know that they've been you know elated with necessarily how his season has has progressed. Uh, not to say they're like mad at him or anything, but it, it, it just sound from when I talked to Sean Horkoff last week, it sounded like uh, you know he was maybe still battling a little bit of, of the recovery process from that injury to kind of get his body to do what it wants to do. Uh, so I you know, but that's something where I certainly think before Evgeny Svech- before the season ends, you probably want to see Evgeny Svechnikov in Detroit at some point as well, right? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to make decisions on him uh, relatively soon, and so I, I do think you need to see him in Detroit because it's kind of the crunch time for him in terms of is he still a long part of Detroit's long-term plan or is he a guy that you now have to consider expendable that just didn't work out from the draft because we're talking about a 2015 draft pick he's his contract's up at the end of the season he was a restricted free agent so obviously the wings you know hold his rights um but it's 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 tough you're saying hey, a first-round draft pick that hasn't made the league at five years, what can I really expect from him? Now, granted, yes, one of those years he misses the entire year because of this knee injury. I just don't see it at this point. So I think you have to bring him up. You have to see what he can do. And basically, like, this is your this is your trial run. This is, this is what you're going to need to show me for me to, to believe that you're still a part of this organization's long-term plan. And, and I'm just not sure it's there right now because if you look at the data and you look at the likelihood of a player who's a first-round draft pick making the league after five years and being an impact player, it's almost negligible at that point. So I'm not sold, but I do think you need to see him because you really haven't given him a true trial run in Detroit uh, for more than a handful of games. No, and he did have a really nice goal last night. I mean, that's the... You know, you, you can see little flashes from him, but on the whole, the the impact level, the production level, uh, probably has not been what you would have you know idealized for him this year. No, absolutely not. I mean, you would have hoped that he would have been able to come back from that knee injury uh, a little bit cleaner, a little bit more comfortable. But it sounds like, to a certain degree, he's still battling, um, you know, issues with that knee and how it feels and how he's moving and. You can certainly see that his production is simply not where you'd want it to be for a 23-year-old in in Grand Rapids in the AHL who's been with the Griffins now. I think this is going to be his uh, third year, uh, third full year getting to play down in Grand Rapids. So you would expect a lot more from him, and it's it's just not been there. He's not been able to find the game that he had when it was 2016-2017, and he put up 51 points in, in in 74 games with Grand Rapids that year and looked really, really sharp. I thought he was one of their best players, if not their best player. He then went on, had 12 points in 19 playoff games. I mean, just looked looked absolutely outstanding and just has not been able to make any sort of progress since then. And it's a little it's a little disappointing and it's a bit of a shame that that knee injury has taken that much of a havoc on him. But I'm just not sure, um, you know, that he's going to be that long-term part. But you have to give him, I think, an extended run in Detroit to prove that. Yep, absolutely. All right, uh, moving on to a couple of Swedish guys. Uh, very bad news for one of the Red Wings, you know, top forward prospects in Sweden, Jonathan Berggren. Uh, sounds like he's going to be out a while. Might cost him the season with with a shoulder surgery. Uh, that is a really rough break for a guy who already had a back injury that cost him much of last year. Yeah, it's now back-to-back years where he's missing substantial time due to injuries, and it's it's a shame because... You know, he was playing at a half a point per game pace in the SHL, uh, the top Swedish hockey league. He had a good World Juniors with five points in seven games and roughly 14 minutes of ice time a night. You know, he was looking really, really comfortable, and, and I think he was building some confidence to where you could have seen, hey, maybe he transitions to the AHL next year with a potential opportunity for NHL minutes uh, as early as the end of next year, but... You have to wonder, does that shoulder surgery put put that plan on in, in pause or potentially stall that out another year? I don't know. I don't know that that's the, the case. I still think if he can make a full recovery from this shoulder injury and doesn't have any sort of long-term effects, you could still conceivably bring him over to Grand Rapids next year and kind of ease his transition over to the North American ice and North American game um, during the next season. But... It's a big blow for, honestly, the Wings' top forward prospect outside of North America right now. 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, I've been in the in the camp with with Bergram where I think it's probably smarter to leave him in Europe until you know you think he's basically NHL ready, and then you bring him more for camp. And if it turns out he needs a little more seasoning, then uh, then you send him to Grand Rapids with a guy like that who plays that style of game. The AHL is just not an offensive player's game. It's it's a really physical game. It's a great teaching game for for showing guys how how hard it can be to. Um, you know, to, to withstand the physicality, but with a guy who has some injuries, with a guy who's a little bit smaller, I almost do wonder if that wouldn't be putting him in the best spot to succeed. I mean, maybe, maybe for that reason, it's like the reason to do it, where you really want to show him challenges. Uh, but I, I don't know. I kind of wonder. Like, like that's a, it's a very physical league. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And Philip Zadina said it himself that it, it's just a different style of hockey, and it's it's not necessarily people thinking the game the same way as as him and that does impact his ability to be effective and I think the same thing would be the case for Berggren um, I think he's a similar elite level thinker elite level playmaker always looking for people in the right positions you know so it's just it's it's a tough situation I do think the the ideal scenario is you bring him over for camp you see what you got um, and then at that point you kind of make the decision is he going to go back to Sweden or is he going to come over to, to Grand Rapids um, and I think you still have that be your plan this off season when when everybody comes in for camp. I think you still do that. You see what he can do. You see how he's moving. And if you think he's got a legitimate shot at uh, sticking in the NHL, then you keep him in North America and you keep him with the team. And if not, maybe you send him back to Sweden. I don't know that it would be the end of the world to get him a little bit of experience in, in Grand Rapids, but you're absolutely right. It's not going to put him in position to succeed offensively. It'd be more if you think this guy's got defensive deficiencies or you want him to get a little bit more familiarity with uh, the smaller ice and the, the wing system, then perhaps you, you start a few games in Grand Rapids and, and bring him up. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know that the injury derails the plan of bringing him over. It'll just be another blow for this guy who's who's really looking to put his game together, but back-to-back years ending with injury. Well, what they do definitely want is they want to emphasize to him uh, that to be an offensive player in the NHL, you can't be a perimeter player. Like you have to be able to play behind the net, at the net, in that kind of scoring square where where a whole lot of the goals uh, in the NHL are scored. So that is a fact. Like they do want him to get used to knowing how to battle for offense. Um, I don't know if that affects things. You know, uh, I, I do think you know the, the smaller ice lends itself to. You know, forcing guys into doing that, I, he can't take guys as wide when the ice is less wide, right? Like that's just a fact. So maybe there is some advantage from that perspective. I know that the, I know for a fact that that is one of their aims with him. Um, so maybe maybe that comes into play. But to me, it's like I don't know, especially with a guy who's has had some injuries. You know, there's some big dudes in that league who who are more than happy to put you on your ass. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what the smartest thing to do there is. But at some point, he's got to do it. So. Uh, we'll see where it goes. The very flip side of that is uh, an extremely large man who's had a lot of success in the Red Wing system. That's Elmer Soderblom. He gets loaned from Forlunda's organization where he had been playing mostly J20, which he was dominating to uh, almost like a disconcerting degree. Like at that point, I don't, I'm skeptical that you're getting anything out of a league when you're able to put up, you know, close to two points per game, which is what he's been doing. He gets loaned to the Elsvenskin, which I think will be a much more interesting test for, for Elmer this season. Yeah, I completely agree because he had gotten into 10 or so SHL games, but he wasn't really playing, you know, meaningful minutes in any of those. So it was either do you, do you stick all the way down in the juniors, uh, in the junior league, the under 20 league, where he was effectively dominating at almost 1.5 points per game um, pace, or do you, do you continue to let him struggle in the SHL, or do you use the intermediate league, um, kind of that second tier league in Sweden, the Allsvenskan, which... I think it makes a lot of sense for him. I think it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how well he plays there uh, because he, he's a very talented player who's taken a huge step forward this season, and I think the Wings are looking for him to continue surprising people. So if he's able to go into all defense, can play some meaningful minutes and, and have a, a, a strong showing, then I think uh, he's a guy who could be, like we've talked about in previous episodes, a guy that... Uh, could outperform his projection, which is what the Wings sorely need right now. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's already outperforming his projection from a six-round pick. 
you're elated if they seem like they're even going to sniff the NHL. And I think he's going to sniff the NHL, right? I mean, he's he's combined a couple of things already that, to me, put him above a lot of guys that, that the Red Wings drafted over him. Um, to me, I would say that he's, you know, in their top five to six guys from that last draft class, which was like a 10-player class. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And, you know, again, six-round picks aren't, aren't often landing in the in the NHL. So, again, if he's able to be the guy that can that can jump out and and overperform his um, his uh, projection, then that's that's huge. Um, I will say, like, I'm a little reticent to say that he's going to be that guy when you're thinking about it. No doubt. Because yeah, you know the the super elite league, the the J20 league in Sweden, it's not it's not a outstanding league. There's a handful of players that have been over there in their D plus one, so draft plus one uh, year, who have done outstanding things over there and, and scored a lot more than Soderblom. But even so, he's still one of the highest scoring uh, D plus one players in that league in, in recent history. So uh, we'll see what the All-Svenskan transition looks like. I think that'll be a lot more telling um, in terms of how effective he is uh, moving forward and how likely he is to hit the NHL. Well, what really what really makes me say that is is even less so the the J twenty and more so what he was able to do at Traverse City. I don't think he was like crazy productive or anything, but they put him pretty much wherever they wanted on lines two through four, and it didn't seem to you know markedly affect his ability to be noticeable. I mean, he was one of the standout guys uh, in that tournament. And oh, granted, we don't have a lot of of. Uh, you know, past to compare it to because usually the Red Wings European draft picks aren't able to come to the Traverse City tournament until basically they're going to go to training camp that same year because they, you know, the Euro seasons start earlier most of the time when they're with senior teams. Their senior teams are going to keep them there for, for training camp, for preseason, for Champions League, all that stuff. Um, both Soderblom and Gustav Berglund came over to that tournament and I thought Soderblom was one of the standouts. So, uh, to me, I, I've I've thought that since even before this super elite season started. I'm not saying that he's he's like an NHL player for sure or anything like that, but I think he's already moved up beyond his draft day projection to a guy where where you would say he's he's got a chance. Yeah, for sure. And if you're trying to draw parallels for Red Wings fans, um, you know, a natural parallel is a guy like Matthias Yanmark, who the Wings took back in 2013, 79th overall, and he played most of his D plus one season. Uh, at the junior level, the the uh, super elite league, the J20 league there, um, and he he was at a 1.5 point per game pace uh, for through 40 games, and Soderblom's been at 1.8 points per game, and again, so he's been a little bit higher than than what Yanmark was, and Yanmark's come been able to come over to uh, the NHL and be a really effective player. So I think I think he's a he's got a legitimate chance, and he's a legitimate player. Um, moving forward, but I think the Osvenskin time will be really, really crucial in identifying kind of what his timeline looks like and what kind of player he could be. Yep. And I think, you know, a lot of it will always come down to when you're that big, how much of your statistical dominance of a league had something to do with the fact that, you know, you were like a foot taller than some of your competition. I mean, that's always going to be a very real factor. And that's why I think the the experiment in, in the Osvenskin will be so interesting. If he's able to have you know, solid success against men, then I think you, you become even a little bit more comfortable saying, hey, this is a guy who maybe could uh, could make the NHL at some point. I, no one here is predicting him to be, like, suddenly, like, a, a top prospect or anything like that. But I think, I just think he's moved up. Like, if the draft was today, he's going a lot higher than the sixth round. Yeah, completely agree. Yep, absolutely. All right, should we go to the questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right, uh, this is fun because I was uh, asleep until, well, a few minutes after we were supposed to start recording today, and so Prashant compiled them, so I'm uh, reading these for the first time. Uh, first one is from John Doe. What realistically happens with this defense core this offseason? Uh, he says there will be five opening slots. Yeah, it's it's going to be a tricky situation for the Wings because, honestly, this is the area where they have the most ability to, to turn over their team is through this offseason with – all of these restricted and unrestricted free agents. I mean, setting the stage, you have Mike Green, Jonathan Erickson, Trevor Daly, Alex Biega, um, all as unrestricted free agents. Then you've got uh, Madison Bowie as a restricted free agent. So really the only guys who are guaranteed to be back 
or Patrick Nemeth, who will have one year left on his deal. Philip Ronick will have one year left on his rookie deal. And then you have Danny DeKaiser, who should likely be back um, healthy and ready to go uh, for the start of next season, and he'll have two more years left on his deal. You know, I think I've said this before. I don't think any of the unrestricted free agents are going to be back. I don't think Madison Bowie is going to be back as a restricted free agent. And what I think you're going to see is this this is going to be a very young defensive core next year. I think legitimately Moritz Sider and Dennis Chalowski could fill two of those spots um, that are going to come up. And, you're again, we're talking about potentially four spots being open here to have seven defensemen. So at, at some combination you have maybe Patrick Nemeth, Philip Ronick, Danny DeKaiser, Moritz Sider, Dennis Chalowski, and that's where I think they're going to go out and likely get a veteran defenseman um, who's maybe a little bit cheaper uh, to be that kind of bottom pairing slash second pairing to stabilizing guy. Honestly, I think they'll look for a guy that's similar to Patrick Nemeth just to, again, one or two years, fill in this hole for a little bit as some of the prospects uh, start to transition. And then after that, who they use at 7th D uh, is anybody's guess. They could conceivably have Joe Hickett serve in that role. I think that would be a great role for him. They could bring back Alex Biega um, and have him serve in that role because he's been, again, really good in that 7th D spot and would not likely cost a a whole lot of money for the Wings to do that. But I think it's going to be a really young defensive core as they start to transition over to some of their prospects um, and away from some of these veteran guys. But I still think they're going to add at least one veteran defenseman. Yep, I think they'll add at least a veteran too. Um, I, I agree with you that Cider will be there. And you got uh, top four, presumably, is some combination of Heronic, DeKaiser, Cider, Nemeth, which could literally be the pairings. Uh, and then I, I do think Dennis Solowski's in there. Um, in terms of someone like Bowie and Biega being back, I could see both of those guys being back. Um, but I think they, they do sign a veteran to, to, you know, slot into kind of the opening night lineup. Uh, from that standpoint, but I I could see both of those guys being back. To be honest, you know, Bowie was their second leading scorer, is their second leading scorer among defensemen this year, and has come on. Like I know we've been saying every time we've talked about it that it's it's a pretty small recent sample, but to me it hasn't really changed all that much since really Christmas. I think he's been solid. Yeah, I mean he's still scoring and he's contributing offensively because he's getting these bigger roles um, with you know Danny DeKaiser out of the lineup, and so he's been able to chip in, which again. He, like we talked about on the, the last episode, he, the Wings have needed a guy that has those offensive instincts, who's thinking about going deeper into the offensive zone, who's thinking about putting himself in scoring position, who's willing to go behind the net and circle with the puck. And, and I think he's really benefited from that, and I think he's been able to, to contribute offensively. So, yeah, I don't think it'd be unheard of for him to be back, particularly if it's only on a one- or two-year deal. Um, given that the Wings still need a little bit of transition time for Jared McIsaac and, and Gustav Lindstrom, I suspect they would want Lindstrom to spend another year in the AHL, even though uh, Sean Horkoff said they were pleasantly surprised with him in your latest uh, article talking about the prospects with him. And then McIsaac, I think they'd ideally like to see get a year in the AHL coming out of the CHL now. So he'll be, I think they need at least one more year to bridge a couple more of those prospects and get a little bit more information. So it wouldn't be the end of the world to, to bring one or two of those guys back. Right, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, when you talk about Lindstrom, he's a guy you could see at some point this year, but I would also expect that, you know, I don't see them going with four defensemen under age 23 next year. To me, that seems like, uh, you're asking for a whole lot of trouble if you do that. Yeah, I completely agree. And so that's where they're going to have to pull in at least one veteran, potentially to bring back Diego, who is on a veteran um, in the process, and then Bowie would be a veteran on that team. Yep, yep, that's a good point. Uh, all right, on to the next one. Uh, LGRW says, do you have a problem with players sticking up for teammates and fighting after a clean hit? For example, Hronik after Phil Pula got hit last night. Uh, what's your take there? Uh, this is an interesting one. So I think that the clean hit thing is just, uh, there's no reason to fight after a clean hit. And I think some of this gets, uh, there's maybe an internal pressure, sometimes either from a teammate or coaching standpoint, or even a media standpoint. I honestly think the media is awful about this, uh, where you're saying, oh, this guy didn't stand up for this guy, or oh, this guy didn't stick up for his teammates. Like, that's awful. You know, you don't want to see that. But at the end of the day, I mean, the heroic situation put the wings on the penalty kill, um, and he took himself out as their best defenseman. He took himself out of that game 
for and 17 minutes. Um, and for the Wings to have to play a hockey game against the highest scoring team in the league without their best defenseman for 17 minutes because he was retaliating for a clean hit to me is just asinine. I think there's absolutely no reason to do any of this, uh, to go after people for clean hits. Um, and I think it's, it's just a problem. It's a problem around the NHL. And I, I think it's, there's pressures that players are clearly feeling, um, the need to do this. And I don't know where or what the most significant pressure point is, whether it's media, teammates, coaches, organizational pressure, whatnot, but it, it's just not necessary. And it's ultimately detrimental to your team. Well, it could also just be a genuine, like, I don't, I don't know. I think it's not unusual for guys to actually want to stick up for their teammates you know that doesn't necessarily have to be a a pressure like they just do it you know what I mean yeah I mean that's fine I, I don't know that this was a situation particularly I think this one maybe is a little bit different because football was actually hurt um, yeah but with some of the other ones that you see around the NHL where there's a clean hit the guy pops right back up but then all of a sudden there's a there's a mad scrum and there's a fight and I think one of the issues is the NHL is inconsistently called the instigator penalty, um, I, which is another reason why I think it's been allowed to go on. And so last night, again, my memory is awful with this. I can't remember the last time uh, the instigator penalty was correctly called, but that's the exact situation where it should be called. And that's the exact result you get from that is you remove that guy for 17 minutes and now potentially it's a it's a modify or behavior modifying penalty where the guy's going to think twice about jumping in that situation to, to cause the fight. But I just, I don't see it as being necessary whatsoever. No. And after a clean hit, I completely agree. I mean, the question's kind of two, two part. Like, do you have a problem with players sticking up for teammates? No. Do you have a problem with fighting after a clean hit? Yeah. Cause that's the game. And at that point, you know, people talk about, right? Like hockey becoming less physical and how the, you know, the league and the rules are contributing to that. Well, I almost wonder if this is contributing to that. If, if guys are being asked to, to fight over a clean hit, uh, is that making the league kind of like a, a less, uh, is it changing the identity of the league? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. I mean, I don't know that a guy is necessarily thinking twice. Cause if, for example, you know, I'm going to put Tom Wilson out there because Tom Wilson's a guy who's been on the, the better part of a number of dirty hits. I can't recall him ever being pulled into a fight once. Um, I don't what? know. Sure. I mean, like, at least in recent years, I can't recall him, like, actually standing up and fighting. Like, I, I think it's always somebody else or, you know, people will go and try and take a run at him. But I don't know how often he actually drops the gloves for the, some of these awful, awful hits that happen. Um, and there's a handful of guys around the league that are like that, too. will throw these hits and then just don't get pulled in on fights. So... I don't know. I don't know that that's like, for example, the Matthew Kachuk situation the other day, right? He throws three hits on Zach Cassie and Cassie goes to fight him. Kachuk doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't drop the gloves. He doesn't go in that situation to fight. And as a result, Cassian gets suspended. Um, so I, I don't know that that's necessarily dissuading people from throwing hits. The implication of, of fighting, um, or having to fight for a potentially clean hit. I don't know that that's necessarily dissuading people from fight, um, from throwing those hits. No, no, I get what you're saying, but I, I mean, like, the, this idea of, like, you know, it's gonna be a whole thing, you know, like, it, it, it always, every hit has to be this, like, big controversy, you know, it, it just seems like it makes the thing a bigger deal than, um, it really used to be, is, I guess, where I'm going. But, but, it, you know, your point's well received. It's, it's, maybe it's not having an actual direct impact on, uh, on what the players are, are thinking moment to moment. Uh, next one's from Bob Lefebvre. 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 Uh, can you break down the Lefebvre? Is that how it is? I'm guessing if it's the French-Canadian pronunciation, it's Lefebvre. All right. There we go, Lefebvre. Uh, can you break down the draft lottery a bit? The odds are readjusted after each pick or no? If Ottawa won number one, would Detroit then have the best odds for the draft number two and so on? Or are the odds set for the first four? Red Wings has... Uh, Rivings have a 49.4 chance at top three. Yeah, this is really interesting. I think it's a great question because uh, I think a number of people are not familiar with how the lottery actually works. Um, it's not like what you think where there's just a bunch of uh, ping pong balls in there and then there's a drawing. So whoever comes out first is first or over second, second, third. It's not one drawing. There's actually four separate drawings. So they first do a drawing for the first overall pick. 
And so you have those odds um, for each of those teams are basically in uh, with those ping pong balls, and that's what happens. So then the odds for the remaining pit, remaining teams after that first one happens are then adjusted proportionally for the second drawing, which determines that second pick, and then proportionally again you're adjusted for the the third pick, and then the remaining teams are actually just sorted in inverse standings, which is why if you finish with the worst record, you can't pick lower than fourth because after drawings for first, second, and third, everything's just inverse standing. So you're going to have the worst record. Um, so it's going to make sense. Uh, or it's going to make you, you pick fourth at that point. So with those, there's basically these four-digit combinations that are randomly generated by computers, and then they're randomly assigned to the non-playoff teams. Um, you get the lottery balls, 1 through 14, are loaded into the machine, and you've got like independent representatives looking at it. You then have the machine switched on. The NHL representative calls for a drawing of each of the four balls at the 15-second intervals, and then Bettman makes the draw. So then once you have the winner of the first drawing, you actually put those four balls back into the machine to actually not adjust those odds. And so you have a redraw conducted if that same team were to win again for the second pick or for the third pick. So ultimately the odds you see on a site like Tankathon are correct. Um, but it is three separate drawings, which is how you get there. Interesting. I don't think I knew that either. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, next one is from NT9125. As of today, who are the most likely trade deadline candidates and what would a hypothetical return for them be? Would there be any names on that list that would surprise people? This is a fun one just because it's, you would expect the wings to be sellers at the deadline and not necessarily buyers. Um, but given how many deals Steve Eiserman's made, uh, you have to wonder if he's still shopping in, in a different perspective, not necessarily shopping to better the team in the short term as most teams are doing at the trade line, trade deadline and instead looking to make deals that, that make the team better in the long term. And so I think honestly with, with Eiserman shopping, the, the number one question that's come into our minds, Max, is, is, uh, is he going to get a goaltender? Um, and I think a couple of questions today we're targeting at that. One question from App State Nick talked about, do the Wings look at a guy like Jake Allen, um, more from a cap space perspective? There's obviously been talks with uh, Alexander Georgiev in, in New York, and if the Wings would be willing to make a deal there. We've obviously talked about the Avalanche um, and their goaltending situation, if if, uh, if one of their guys might become available. So I'm I think goaltender maybe is is the situation where the Wings shop uh, and potentially acquire one. But outside of that, I'd be surprised if they go in any other direction. What do you think, Max? Yeah, I mean, the the names that I think – I don't think there's any names that would surprise people because I think Red Wings fans are pretty good at uh, sniffing out little – but we also don't know. You know, there's always surprises because we're not in the front office, right? We're not like in on meetings. I'm sure their names have been discussed that would surprise people. I just don't know what they are. So, um, you know, the, the names that you and I think would be interesting candidates are, have probably been pretty well plowed at this point, whether it's, uh, like an Alexander Georgiev or, uh, you know, a defenseman that, you know, is, is from a team that's probably going to have to, uh, that squeeze for spots, like like we've talked about, you know, it's something like a Trevor Van Riemsdyk deal, uh, whether it's now or in the offseason, though with the Dougie Hamilton injury, it probably becomes a lot tougher for Carolina to swing something like that. I, I just kind of anticipate that it being a seller situation as well, where they're looking to add uh, picks and, and prospects. And so from that standpoint, it becomes very hard to to zero in on a guy or two who makes sense because really it's just like, do you have a first-round pick? Do you have a second-round pick? Yeah, that makes sense for the Red Wings. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree just because at this point, their buying is picks and prospects. Um, they're not necessarily looking for guys that you're going to bring into the organization outside of, I think, a goaltender, simply because as when you hit the offseason, as we've talked about at length, you've got Jonathan Bernier in your contract for next year. But as of right now, you have nobody else in the system who is likely um, going to be able to advance. You're going to have to then make the decision, do I bring back Jimmy Howard or do I have to go after a, a backup goaltender? And that's why we've talked about Pavel Fancuz in Colorado. We've talked about um, Alexander Georgiev and, and a number of other guys. But it'll be it'll be interesting to see what what is done here. There were some Anaheim scouts, a couple Anaheim scouts credentialed for both of this weekend's games. I thought that was interesting. You want to steal one of their uh, their prospect goalies? 
I don't care. I'm just saying that's that's an observation I made. Yeah, I mean, it, Anaheim would be an interesting team to deal with because they do have a handful of, of good prospect goaltenders available that, again, if they're willing to move um, one of those guys, they may be able to, the Wings might be able to make something happen and may have to uh, swing something there. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, if the Wings do any sort of shopping. I'd be I'd be surprised if they do, though. I just wonder who Anaheim could even be looking at. Like, what's Anaheim doing at this deadline? Oh, that's an excellent question. I mean, Anaheim should conceivably be doing the same thing as the Red Wings and tearing down and, and looking at things. I mean, they already let Corey Perry go in the offseason, which I think was great. Uh, but as you're finishing up with Ryan Getzloff, they can't really be thinking about trying to take another run at anything because they're just nowhere in that position. So my personal opinion would be Anaheim should be doing the same thing Detroit's doing. So I'm not really sure what they're looking at. Yeah, it's also possible, like, maybe they're looking at the, the teams the Red Wings had in town, right? Those are both playoff teams that are ostensibly buyers, or, or maybe they weren't even at the game. Like, sometimes the credential list doesn't necessarily always accurately portray who you actually end up seeing at the game and stuff like that, so. That's fair. I don't want to make too big a, too big a deal out of it. Just something I noticed on the, on the seating chart. Uh, alright, and then on to the last one, App State Nick. If the Red Wings were able to we- weaponize cap space, what do you think about Jake Allen from St. Louis? Would give St. Louis money to burn off in the deadline and offseason? The Red Wings a replacement level, and then in parentheses, or worse, whatever, NHL goalie with Bernier for one season. Jake Allen's an interesting name because, obviously, he's no longer the starting goaltender in St. Louis. Uh, Bennington has clearly taken that over. Um, and with Bennington's contract in place, uh, the Blues currently have $8.75 million tied up in their goaltenders, with Jake Allen getting $4.35 million. He is under contract uh, through next season, but then is an unrestricted free agent after that. So I think when you're talking about weaponizing cap space, as, as we've discussed on previous episodes, um, the most important thing is what would that team need that cap space for? Do they have a number of, of free agents coming up, a number of guys in line for big raises? Um, and that would potentially make that team an attractive trade target um, to try and get one of their higher-cost guys who's maybe overpaid right now. Um, and if you look at St. Louis, they kind of fit that mold. Uh, St. Louis right now has uh, $73.8 million already committed to next year. And the one guy I think we've mentioned on prior episodes that they've got coming up as a free agent in the soft season is Alex Petrangelo, who's their captain. And so does he become expendable if St. Louis is not able to clear cap space? Or does Detroit say, hey, we'll take Jake Allen off your hands, and St. Louis right now likely to have a, a high pick, uh, and by high I'm meaning like 31st likelihood, um, 31st in the first round right now. Is Detroit able to say, hey, if you give me Jake Allen in a first, I will, uh, I'll take him off your hands and, and that way you're freed up to sign, uh, you know, uh, to Alex Petrangelo in the offseason and, and St. Louis is able to sustain, uh, the current stretch that they're on. Because right now, if you look at St. Louis's cup window, um, this is pretty much it this year and then, and then next year because in 2021, 2022, uh, obviously, Alex Steen will be much older. He may be looking at retirement. Jaden Schwartz might be in line for a raise. He'll be a free agent. You'll have to decide what you're going to do with Tyler Bozak, uh, Barbashev, Robert Thomas, Jordan Cairo, Zachary Sanford. Uh, they're all free agents. Bennington's a free agent. Um, so there's going to be a lot of moves in 2021-2022 that St. Louis's best shot at the cup maybe this year and next year, and you might be able to convince them to give you Allen in a first because – uh, it would be a, a decent swing for the wings to to try that, and who knows? I mean, that might be that might be a great move. So he might be a great target. Yeah, you might have to package something going their way that they could use in order to get like a high return like that. But I, you know, I do think it's a an option worth exploring. And then the cap space idea is one that you have been on from the very jump. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if they go that route. Certainly, Steve Eiserman's paper transactions with Philip Zadina for that that month there uh, do suggest that they have an interest in having cap space so I don't I don't know uh, where that could eventually lead but it'll be interesting for sure uh, that's all the questions is there anything else you want to say before we move on no I think uh, into the afterlife I think that's everything that I've got for this week 
All right. Well, there you go. Red Wings are at uh, Colorado and Minnesota, so, and then it's the All-Star break. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what to necessarily expect from either of those games except for uh, very likely wins for Colorado and Minnesota. Yeah, I'd say that's probably your best case scenario. Although, hey, if Jimmy Howard um, continues to play the way that he's playing right now, you, we may see close losses to Colorado and Minnesota. That's quite possible. Uh, day game for Colorado, that's kind of fun. Day game on a Monday. Yeah, that'll be exciting. And, you know, I'm off on Monday, so I can actually sit home and watch it. There you go. All right, uh, I'm going to not forget my podcast equipment, so we'll be back at you guys sometime in the middle of this week. Uh, thank you guys for listening, as always, and we will talk to you uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Thursday.